This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And we tell you all kinds of stories from all walks of life as it relates to business and the arts, big, big names in history. But we love bringing you the small stories, too, because in our mind, they're all important. They're all relevant. And sometimes the small ones speak to us better than the big ones do. We bring you this show, by the way, from a small town in Mississippi called Oxford, home of Ole Miss. And while we talk to people of all kinds from all over this great country, sometimes we like to bring you stories from people in our neck of the woods, our little town. And so we bring you the story of Ron Lakey, the owner of Ron's Music Center, a small but thriving music store right here in Oxford. This is Pure Americana. I'm Ron Lakey. My home is Oxford, Mississippi. My hometown is Ashland, Mississippi. Ashland was uh, when I was growing up. I went to school there for an extended education. I went to high school about for uh, 14 years, so uh, I got a lot of education in Ashland. And uh, looking back, uh, we had the greatest teachers. We had a great school. Um, we we turned out some really smart people there. Uh, I found out in testing in later years that uh, that they even taught me a lot. My mom and dad uh, both worked very hard um, all of my life un- until I got to be. 17 or 18 years old and uh, after that they still did work hard but they went from uh, working for the public working for other people to having their own uh, grocery business for their normal standard of living they had they worked themselves right on up the community loved them they were just great parents to me. I'm sure I ran them crazy. I have a brother and a sister. Because my granddad had been uh, a former sheriff of that county, uh, I had a lot of access to stuff that he had taken off of people during his four years of service. He just had an old cigar box full of things like straight razors and knuckles, you know, lead knuckles and aluminum knuckles and that sort of thing. And uh, and I've always been a, you know, I used to trade anything in school, you know, and uh, we'd trade pocket knives and come up with things like cigarette lighters and all that stuff. And Grandpa had just kind of turned all that stuff over to me, and uh, and I was trading it off, and I got caught trading a set of knuckles off. <laughs> One of mine was made out of uh, Babbitt lead, which it was for lead. It was old lead knuckles, you know. It They weren't soft, and they were heavy. And the other one was really nice cast aluminum, and uh, looked it looked neat. 
I just traded, either sold them, traded for another knife or something like that. But uh, the janitor there told on me and the guy that was getting them. And boy, in no time, our principal was on the horn and, and he called Ron Lakey and Tommy Curtis to the office. And, and uh, it was real serious, and he looked serious. And uh, he decided he needed that that wasn't enough. He needed to take me home to show my dad and my granddad what kind of sins I was committing at school. <laughs> and and both of them already knew about that. Mr. White took those knuckles and went through a dramatic spill with Dad and Grandpa and he gave those to them and took me back to school. That night at supper, I thought I was really in trouble, you know. But after supper and everybody else had cleared the table, Dad reached in his pocket and he said, here, don't get in trouble with them things. <laughs> and he gave, you know, he gave them, gave them back to him. He said, just don't get in trouble with them. So okay, but you know, we didn't fight at school. We didn't fight after school. I mean, it was everybody got along, and uh, school was fun. It was it was cool to have a car. There probably weren't there probably were not twelve students that came to work to school in a car. I quit school because I didn't have a car, and I went out and got a factory job, earned enough to buy a cheap car. My uncle saw that I needed a car, and he had a cool little Austin Ailey Sprite, and he sold it to me for $500. And that was a lot of money then, but it was a wonderful buy and a wonderful opportunity. And so for my last year in high school, I had Austin Ailey Sprite, so we were, it was neat to have a car, and, and still there weren't 12 cars in school. And you've been listening to Ron Lakey. And his story is, well, it's a story from right here in our little town of Oxford. And we'd love to hear your stories, too. And as you can tell, we just stay out of the way. And we ask a few open questions, but you don't hear us in these stories. We want to hear from Ron and his life. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And it doesn't have to be yours if it's someone in town you think's interesting. Well, we'll tell their stories for you. Again, send the stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Contact us. Our producers will be in touch. We'll send some recording gear your way with a little sheet with some basic questions. And the rest is, well, easy. Again, Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories, the owner of Ron's Music Center in our beautiful and small and not perfect town, but good town of Oxford, Mississippi. More after these messages.
And we return to Our American Stories and the story of Ron Lakey, the owner of Ron's Music Center right here in Oxford, Mississippi. Let's continue with Ron's story. A buddy of mine and I joined the Navy in 1966 and went to uh, boot camp in California, San Diego. Went aboard a ship from the West Coast, the USS Galveston. It was a guided missile light cruiser. After we got on it, went to the East Coast, went to the Mediterranean uh, to be the flagship for the Admiral in the Mediterranean in 67. We went down through the Panama Canal and came out on the other side, went to Newport, Rhode Island, and then through really bad hurricane weather as we went around Cape Hatteras. We went from the U.S., Palma, Mallorca was our first stop. Then we were in several cities in that part of the world over there. Of course, we were in Naples, Italy, and uh, we were in Sicily, a couple of towns in France, and we went to Barcelona, Spain, uh, and a lot of that. But at that time, the interesting thing about that time was in 67 was uh, when the Israeli were having problems, you know. They had neighboring countries that were trying to be at war with them as they are today. In the middle of that, there was a ship, our ship, that the Israeli attacked they uh they hit it with torpedo boats and uh put two or three torpedoes in it and killed 32 men on board it was a mistake that ship was moved to Valletta Malta and my friend and I were able to go to that ship and go on board that ship and and see the reality of that and uh you know when you're 20 years old, that was a big impression. And, uh, the ship was pretty pretty messed up, and uh, uh, we had to smell human flesh all the time that we were on that ship. And it was that was pretty tough and just pretty memorable. And in 1968, I got orders to go to Vietnam. Uh, we trained in California to teach us the reality of what we would be into. Then 40 miles south of Saigon, there was an attachment there called the Mobile Riverine Force. And uh, I was in that Mobile Riverine Force on a boat, pretty well armored boat. Each boat had a about a seven-man crew a boat captain, which would be an enlisted man, and then the driver, or coxswain, which was me. It was a skeleton crew, but we were pretty heavily armed. My boat carried 1,100 gallons of gasoline bladder in the well deck, and, you know, the rivers over there just use like, you know, there's rivers that qualify as expressway, and there's rivers that qualifies a dirt road you know and uh, we had to travel through those areas you could real easy be in a firefight my boat was really blessed there would be convoys that would go through these areas 
and get hit. And then our turn, they would forewarn us and give us all the intel. And we'd go through and come out on the other side clean. And uh, it was just like trouble till we went through. And then after we went through, trouble <laughs> for everybody else. But it was a really good experience. I wouldn't take anything for having gone over there. I know the good things that we did over there. I know the humane things that we did over there. I went to work as a purchasing agent for a mobile home factory. I went to work in Memphis in 73 and sold cars. Went to New Orleans, sold cars. Went back to Memphis, sold cars. And then in 1975, I had a very serious wreck which rendered me legally blind. I don't have any sight in my left eye. And I've got, you heard about the guy that's blind in one eye and can't see out of the other. Well, that's me. I had worked all my life and I enjoyed working. And uh, it slowed me down uh, a lot. It put me in a position that I had never been in before. You know, because of the severity of the accident, I wound up spending 45 days in the hospital and had brain surgery because the accident busted my brain. But once they relieved everything, uh, relieved the pressure, everything fell back in place and healed. It was nothing to sneeze at. It, it took me a year till I had strength like I should because I had gone from like 205 pounds, uh, but I lost down to about 140 pounds. And so had a lot of strength to rebuild and uh, to adapt to my blindness. I didn't want to sit around all my life. And uh, so there was the choice. You either figure out what you're going to do and, or you just sit around and don't do anything. And I couldn't do that. I got out of the hospital in January 76. And uh, it took me from there till 78 to figure out what was I going to do. I did go to the Center for the Blind in Jackson, Mississippi, which was, a, which was a great facility, great people. Uh, I learned more about mobility. My counselor wanted them to see me because... Uh, if they wanted to invest in me, they want, he wanted them to know what they were looking at. And so I spent about 12 weeks down there. Uh, it was a great help for me. And uh, out of frustration for finding a set of strings in the Holly Springs one weekend, next time I told him, I said, I guess if I could do anything I wanted to do, I'd open a music store. And... He uh, he said, I know a little about that. And so we kind of pursued that. Got a little SBA loan. Vocational rehab uh, gave me a $5,000 grant, just a gift. So I bought that old store out. It had about a $5,000 inventory. $5,021 is a fact. And... Uh, I had five thousand, so I went. <laughs> I went into business, twenty-one dollars in the hole. So, 
maybe I've dug out by now. I've been doing this this year in May. Will have been 40 years. And you're listening to Ron Lakey. And if you can, well, if you can see what we're up to, it's simple. We should be listening to each other more. And right in your own community, there are people with unbelievable stories. You don't have to go to the movies, folks. Uh, our real lives are, well, maybe more interesting than anything we can see on the screen. I mean, imagine this this guy who you probably walk in and out of a music store. You know people like this in 1968. There he is in Vietnam. And as he put it, his boat was just blessed. Others ran into trouble. His would get through unscathed, and then others would run into trouble. But he said some good came of it. And that is an American voice. You're hearing 45 days in a hospital after a car wreck, brain surgery, all kinds of troubles, healing, losing weight. And what does he want to do? Well, he doesn't want to sit around and complain. He wants to have a life. I didn't want to sit around all my life. I couldn't do that, Ron Lakey said. It took a few years to figure out what I wanted to do. $5,000 loan, $5,000 of inventory in this little music store, and he starts his own business, 21 bucks in the hole, but filled with optimism and filled with hope for his own future. Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories. And again, we really were looking for you to, to share your stories with us and send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And getting conversations with your neighbors and whatever you do, don't talk about politics because there's so many things that unite us. And, well, that just doesn't happen to do it. And we try to avoid all that stuff here on this show. Keep things positive. Keep things well, on an even tone, talk to a neighbor, send a neighbor's story our way to ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, we'll finish up with Ron Lakey's story from our beautiful but not perfect town here just about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee, in Oxford, Mississippi, home of all Miss and home of Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Ron Lakey, owner of Ron's Music Center here in Oxford, Mississippi. Let's continue with his story. If you could fill up one hand, five fingers with friends that are really sincere friends, you're very fortunate. That's friends through thick and thin. I can do that. A friend of mine called me that I had not seen in 40 years. My wife says, I think it's a telemarketer. It says on the phone, Dave Love. Took the phone. He said, is this Ronald Lakey? I said, it is. He said, 
were you in the Navy? And I said, hell, Dave, we were in there together. You knew that. You have to ask me. <laughs> and it kind of it kind of blew him away. Maybe he didn't think I would remember him or I don't know what, but he was just trying to make sure he had the right guy. But he and I sat down and talked over the phone for I don't know how long, but everything he asked, you know, everything he said, I could add something to it. And we learned about all of our guys. The next year, we had a reunion in Memphis of that of our division on that ship. But in the meantime, we had located other guys and we had communicated. I was talking to one of those guys. I said, you know, after we did this, I said, I had so many memories. He said, yeah. And I said, and we were tight. I said, I didn't realize till I met with these guys again how tight we really were in that division. I said, we were, we were tight. He said, yeah, Ron. He said, we were 18, 19, 20 years old. We'd never been anywhere. We never, most of us never been in a big city. And here we are on a, we come out of 400 population town. We're on a ship with 900 men on it. And we go to San Diego and, uh, and Long Beach and we're in Los Angeles. We were dumped out there and we kind of had to stick together because we were all we had. <laughs> and, and you never, you didn't think about that then, but truthfully, that was what we had. We just had each other. That was what we had. We just had each other. I enjoy coming, I enjoy coming to work every day. I'd like to work less, you know, I'd, I'd rather work about three days a week, but uh, when you're in business and you have employees and you have big bills to pay and that sort of thing, you work. I enjoy that we are mostly Christian-based in Mississippi. I was saved as a young kid, you know, when I was about 11 or 12. When I woke up in the hospital and I didn't have a clue about where I was, and I didn't know that my eyesight was bad. The doctor had a real deep voice, and, and he brought me out of my sleep. He said, son, can you hear me? And I said, yes, sir. Thoughts start running through my mind. I couldn't put anything together. And he said, do you know where you are? And I said, God, I hope I'm in a hospital. Because <laughs> I knew how I'd been living, you know, because I was cutting a pretty wide strip about that time. And uh, he said, you're right, you're in a hospital. And I realized right then that I spiritually was not in good shape if I was not in a hospital. And should I die? And when I came to that realization, after I went through the things that I went through in the hospital, but after that, I knew that God was looking out for me and that he had allowed me to live. He's made things happen for me. I've had a lot of prayers answered. I can see them. I've seen them being answered. Many years have come.
come and gone Since he walked upon this ground They say lives don't last so long So why's his story hanging round And why do people stop and pray To a man that's dead and gone When I ask them they just say He's coming back to take me home Anybody here want to live forever Say I do Anybody here want to walk on golden streets Say I do Is anybody here sick and tired of living like you do? Anybody here want a home with love forever? Say I do. It's just, it's just a little old song that I sang at church sometimes. Tell immediately that it came out of a liquor store. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. And, uh, wow, listen to that. Can you do that again? <laughs> yeah. It's got a good bell, doesn't it? It's a nice... It is. It's a neat piece. A lot of folks like that. I think it's a 1944. Luis has been with me in the store since he graduated. He came highly recommended, and he's been a blessing to me. And I rely on him heavily. I'm uh, just working on this Ibanez. This one has a, uh, it's got one of these floating floral tremolos. So sometimes a little harder to adjust. It's because if you're, when you tune in, you know, you got a certain amount of tension on the neck, so it'll, it'll might pull it up too, too far up. Which raises your action. This one was actually rattling, so you kind of kind of have to adjust the tension on the springs and just play with it till you get it just right. He started here in May five years ago. So five years and almost five months, and and I like it. It's 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 something that there's always something new coming out with uh, sound systems, and you're always learning something, uh, which kind of helps my brain. So we get guitars that are. Nice guitars that customers have that cost a lot of money, and they get breaks or cracks and that sort of thing. I knew everything to do, but Luis can take it to the next level. One because of his pride in his work, but two his his eyesight. He can he can see he can turn out really pretty work on these nice guitars. How y'all doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. She said we've never looked at instruments or anything up close, so she well, has to look at. You just make yourself at home. If I can help you with anything, just holler at me. Thank you And you've been listening to Ron Lakey, and great job as always to Jesse for capturing Ron's story. And my goodness, I, I can see that scene. He had just wrecked his car, and he hears a voice, son, can you hear me? Yes, sir. You know where you are. Well, I hope I'm at a hospital. And spiritually, he admitted, I wasn't in good shape. After that, I knew God was looking out for me. 
And he sang that, that beautiful song. And a, a humble story, a humble guy, and a good guy, in a country filled with good guys and gals. Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories, the story of a veteran, the story of a man with a disability that, well, doesn't stop him, and the story of a man who loves serving people. When that door opens, you know he just wants to hook them up with the right instrument or whatever else they need. Again, Ron Lakey's story, owner of Ron's Music Center in our little beautiful part of this great country, Oxford, Mississippi. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about the Wrigley Mansion in Phoenix, Arizona. That's right. We tell stories about buildings. We've told stories about towns, about the toilet, about candy corn, in addition to all the other stories we tell. It was built by William Wrigley Jr., the man who invented, as you can probably guess, Wrigley's chewing gum. Judy Pearson is here to tell us the story of the building, the man who built it, and so much more. Take it away, Judy. In 1891, 30-year-old William Wrigley arrived in Chicago from Philadelphia. With $32, the only money he had to his name, about $900 today, he started the Wrigley Scouring Soap Company. To entice housewives to try his soap, he included a box of baking powder with every purchase. Wrigley was soon shocked to discover that his baking powder was more popular than his soap. So he went into the baking soda business, adding two packages of chewing gum to each can. Again, his gift with purchase was more popular than his primary product, and Wrigley's chewing gum was born, producing spearmint, juicy fruit, and double mint. The business grew, and so did Wrigley's fortune. In 1915, he spent two and a half million dollars telling people that chewing gum aided the digestion and that chewing it was a pleasurable experience. Remember, double your pleasure, double your fun with double mint gum? Wrigley was a whirlwind of ideas. He never stopped innovating and reinventing himself, always ready for the next adventure. He bought a minority stake in the Chicago Cubs in 1916 and became the majority owner in 1921. Six years later, he changed the name of the team's ballpark to Wrigley Field. Wondering about the feasibility of shipping his chewing gum via the relatively new airplanes in 1919, Wrigley got the idea to drop packages connected to parachutes. Dealers across the Midwest would then travel to the drop points, taking delivery of their merchandise. That same year, Wrigley bought the Santa Catalina Island Company. As had been the case with Wrigley's own ventures, the company came with a gift with purchase, the entire island, located off the coast of Los Angeles. With the dream of creating an enterprise that would help employ local residents, Wrigley improved the island with public utilities, new steamships, a hotel, a casino, and extensive plantings of trees, shrubs, and flowers. 
by that time, Wrigley had ownership, full or partial, in 15 different companies around the country. It was Arizona that next captured his heart. He bought a few mines in the state, but real estate held a special interest. Wrigley created a syndicate with three other men to purchase 150 acres along famed Camelback Road. The purchase price was $100,000, a million and a half today, although today it's worth many times more than that. The land was adjacent to the newly opened Biltmore Hotel, in which Wrigley was also heavily invested. The Tsar of Chewing Gum owned four very palatial homes, but in 1930, he began building something special on the 100-foot-high La Colina Solana, the sunny hill. It would be an anniversary gift for Wrigley's wife, Ada, and oh, what a home it was to be. The Mission Revival Mansion would be nearly 17,000 square feet. Set on 10 acres, it would have a 360-degree view of the Valley of the Sun below. The 30-foot-high foyer rotunda would be adorned with gold leaf and hand-painted ceiling. And the floor below was laid with tiles made in Wrigley's Catalina Island estate kiln. The rest of the home had pegged oak floors covered in beautiful hand-woven Spanish rugs. The oak Steinway grand piano to be placed in the living room was one of only two in existence, doubling as a player piano. And all of the chairs throughout the mansion were carefully crafted lower than normal to accommodate Ada's petite frame. Every doorknob, hinge, window fixture, and switchplate in the mansion would be brass, with the exception of those in the family bedrooms. They were sterling silver. The mansion took three years to reach its splendor. It was Wrigley's plan to spend the early months of 1932 there. But a few weeks after arriving in January, he was stricken with acute indigestion and died at the age of 70 in his bedroom atop the sunny hill. The Wrigley Mansion, as the locals called the home, remained a much-loved family destination. Ada suffered a stroke there, dying in 1957. And then, in 1973, the beautiful mansion was sold. Like a stray dog, she passed from one ill-fated owner to another. A developer who died of a heart attack. A savings and loan caught up in the 1980s scandal. Another developer who filed for bankruptcy. But prior to each failed ownership, her lovely rooms and grounds welcomed business conferences, dozens of brides and grooms, and celebrity parties. And then, the end of the line arrived for the Wrigley Mansion. In 1992, rumors reported that this graceful landmark would be demolished for condo construction. Enter another intriguing millionaire capitalist with a love of beautiful things. Jordy Hormel's family had founded Hormel Foods, based in Austin, Minnesota. The company's most famous product was the canned meat, Spam. Jordy loved music, owning a music studio in Los Angeles and playing multiple instruments. As a composer, he had written a number of well-known television theme songs and once recorded with his buddy Frank Zappa. Like William Wrigley, Jordy eventually found his way to Phoenix, where he bought the largest home in the state of Arizona. And not long after that purchase, 
he heard about the proposed fate of the mansion on the sunny hill. He called a realtor friend and requested a showing. In the first few minutes of his Wrigley Mansion tour, Jordy was transported back to his childhood, and the Wrigley's home reminded him of his own childhood home. Having turned that into a supper club, where he entertained guests with his accomplished piano playing, he knew he could do the same thing with this mansion. The beautiful stray dog won Jordy Hormel's heart. He bought it immediately. Jordy and his wife Jamie began restoring the mansion and opened it as a private club. Jordy entertained Sunday brunch guests on the Steinway Grand, still in the living room. He played Happy Birthday every Sunday because, as Jordy used to say, every day is someone's birthday. The family enjoyed the mansion as much as the public did. The Hormel children would sneak napkins out of the dining room and slide down the hill on them. And the pastry chefs could always be charmed into giving them treats. They celebrated birthdays and holidays at the mansion, and the Hormels even renewed their wedding vows there. When Jordy died in 2006, Jamie became the mansion's proprietor. Continuing what her husband had begun, she has made it a world-class destination. She's brought the kitchen into the 21st century while lovingly updating rooms to former grandeur. The spectacular wine cellar is well-stocked, an outstanding Phoenix chef is at the helm in the kitchen, and the national awards keep rolling in. The Wrigley Mansion, and the Wrigleys in general, hold a special place in my heart. My mother was a die-hard and lifelong Chicago Cubs fan. The baseball team William Wrigley bought in 1921. Living in Phoenix, I discovered the magical charm of the Wrigley Mansion shortly after the Hormels reopened it as a private club and restaurant. I took my father there for dinner when he came to Phoenix on a business trip. He was so taken with the history and the views that when he returned home, he and my mother hatched the idea of a surprise 40th birthday party for me to be held in the mansion on the sunny hill. Every time I walk into that majestic foyer, I'm reminded of that magical night in 1993 when Happy Birthday was played for me on that famed Steinway in the living room. My mother died just a few weeks after my memorable Wrigley Birthday Gala and was never able to visit the Tsar of Chewing Gum's beautiful Phoenix Mansion. But I know she would chuckle at one particular detail. Through all the owners and renovations, one room remained just as William Wrigley created it. To the left of the hand-carved double front doors is a tiny closet with a small table and a telephone switchboard, vintage of course. Today, it's assumed the butler used the room to call family members when visitors arrived. It has a unique silver sheen on the walls and the faint odor of mint. It is the gum room. It is wallpapered with foil from my favorite Wrigley chewing gum. Doublement. And what a beautiful story by a beautiful storyteller. And we're talking about Judy Pearson, and she's a published author. And no, she's not John Christian, and she's not a household name, but we love bringing you people who we think are terrific writers, telling terrific stories about places or people, this time the Wrigley Mansion, and my goodness, if you ever get a chance, go there, have a lunch or a brunch, bring a daughter or bring a son, bring the wife, bring the husband. 
It's just a beautiful place, and everyone can afford to go. Rich, middle class, not so middle class. Scrape together a few bucks, have a beautiful brunch or a tea. And by the way, it's a lot like the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs, a beautiful place to take a family or entertain people or have a wedding. And it's like the Biltmore in North Carolina, and there's a place, I'm sure, near you like it. The Wrigley Mansion story here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for a look back to a device that helped win the West. Here's Jesse with the story of windmills. You can drive just about anywhere in America and find windmills if you're looking for them. The old metal ones you see in paintings of Texas or the Midwest. From the novelty lawn ornament variety for under a hundred bucks, to the towering vintage water pumps accenting skylines next to barns or pastures and cornfields. Fully restored or in beautiful decay, working or not, these giant relics of Americana aren't just for decoration. And the West couldn't have been won without them. Out of the mid-1850s, salesman John Burnham and machinist Daniel Halliday came up with the basic design that we would recognize today with the Halliday Windmill Company. It was relatively lightweight, nimble, it could swivel so it was always facing the wind and angle its blades to adjust for speed to avoid damage and strong winds automatically. Families and farms were able to pump water and store it in tanks anytime the wind was blowing. Right around the turn of the century, between the 1800s and the 1900s, there was over 600 windmill companies in the United States. Tanya Meadow is with the American Windmill Museum in Lubbock, Texas. The American Windmill Museum was started in 1993 by a lady who was a teacher at Texas Tech University and Mr. Coy Harris, who is still our executive director. This building houses over 110 windmills. We've got windmills in here from as big as six foot wide, which is the diameter of the wheel, how we measure a windmill, up to 25 feet wide in diameter. The old steam engines could only go 15 to 30 miles before they had to stop for water, depending on the terrain. You look at our little towns out here in West Texas, 15 to 30 miles down the road, there's a little town, probably sprung up there because that's where the railroad had to stop in order for them to be able to uh, get water for the steam engine. So there was a major relationship between the railroads and the windmills. The windmill pumped the water to power the steam engines on the trains of the first transcontinental railroad out west. There's only one company that stood the test of time and continues to build them right here in the good old USA. And that would be the Air Motor Company. The Air Motor Company started off in Chicago, Illinois, late 1800s, and then in the 1950s they were purchased by a Texan, 
and the plant was moved to San Angelo, Texas, where it still is today, and they still make windmills today. Your larger ranches still use windmills. It's so much easier to put up a windmill for under $20,000 than it is to try to run 20 miles of electrical line in order to be able to pump water for your large ranches. and ca the, the Four Sixes Ranch is a big one. They, have a, they actually have a full-time windmiller. One of the reasons that the air motor business is still in business today is they were always thinking, what can we do to make life easier? What can we do to make life better? They were one of the first ones to, to create what was called the power mill. And the power mill would have been a different gearing system on a building outside the, the barn or one of your other outbuildings. And inside, underneath, there would be a grinder so that they could grind their corn and their wheats in order to be able to have their flowers in order to do their breads and grains. They also were one of the first ones to enclose the gearbox. It has an oil reservoir underneath it and a big bonnet on top of it. And they said that you only had to oil your windmill once a year. Now that's a major time saving as opposed to having to climb up there three or four times a day and put oil on the gears. Many of the windmills that dotted the path out west were rendered obsolete by the 1930s as electric and diesel-powered trains took over the railways. Once electric pumps became popular, windmills on farms went neglected and began to break down over time without proper maintenance. But some people like to get these old wind pumps working again. Like Rick Ritter of St. Jacob, Illinois, he restored his Flint and Whaling brand windmill that's been standing on the family farm as long as he can remember. I just thought it was so cool. Um, I never got to see it run till I was 40-something when I fixed it. It uh, always stood out here on the farm and never got used. It had weeds, vines, morning glories, climbed all the way up to the top. And in probably 1990, I started cutting vines at the bottom and eventually, after all everything died on it, I was able to pull it all off. All the, the vines that were grown around it. I had an old guy tell me, said you need to get those vines off there because what will happen during a heavy windstorm with vines and stuff on there blocking it the wind will take the whole thing to, to the ground so he said basically you even need to get the vines off of it or else you're going to be out there with a cutting torch cutting it up and I just the whole I just didn't want to lose it I thought it was just a, a neat piece of history to have standing here so I cut the vines pulled it off it took me years to get that done until we got it all taken down which I had a cherry picker come in and take it down and it stayed on the ground for a year while everything got repainted and refinished on it. I think they bought it used. Um, 1926 is the year on this one. It's been standing since I was a kid. I never got to see it run at all till I was till actually I restored it. I must have shot a pickup truck load of 22 caliber bullets out here and whatever and uh, for some good reason I just never shot holes in the windmill. Most windmills you see if they aren't destroyed from wind damage or whatever somebody's blowed holes in them and especially in that crown that's on top of here and once you blow holes in that from the bottom up especially water gets in the top gets into the gears and bearings rusts it solid and it's pretty well junk that's the way a lot of these got ruined was bullet holes basically the other way is you would run them completely out of oil and let them spin because what will happen you'll get a big windstorm come up it'll spin all the bearings in there will get really hot and all of a sudden it will lock up and the inertia of that spinning windmill will wad this thing up like a ball, put it on the ground, and once again the torch comes out and you're going to end up hauling it away as scrap iron. 
So I always liked it standing here and just didn't shoot at it. And when the weeds grew up, I pulled the weeds off of it and then eventually I fixed it. And great job as always to Jesse. And my goodness, there's an American Windmill Museum in Lubbock, Texas, and a special thanks if you're ever driving through, stop by. The Windmill Story, an important part of American history here on Our American Story. our American stories and now it's time for our Ditch Digger CEO series with Gary Rabine. Gary is the founder and president of perhaps the best paving company in the country. As an entrepreneur he's met many incredible businessmen and women throughout his life and in this series Gary brings us their stories. And today's story begins in Saigon, Vietnam. I was born in 1973 in Saigon, Vietnam I was very fortunate. My mother worked for the U.S. Naval Attaché. My father was a South Vietnamese Army officer. And in the spring of 1975, we left Saigon in a big hurry, because that's what you do when communist forces are taking over your home country. That's France Hong, an American entrepreneur who's helped start a number of successful businesses. But before he got there, here is where his story begins. One day, a U.S. official came to my mom and said, look, we think that it's best that your family leave the country, and we think it's best that you do that as soon as possible. And that was part of a glorious and kind of forgotten chapter of American history called Operation Frequent Wind, when the United States government decided to evacuate over 130,000 Vietnamese for, um, allies of, and friends of, of the United States to the United States rather than leave them behind. And my family was one of those fortunate families that was evacuated as part of that. They really should make a movie out of it. Operation Frequent Wind. I mean, some incredible stories. The United States took people out by plane, including my family. They sent ships out to sea. Uh, Vietnamese were loading up their families into helicopters and planes and just taking off east, not knowing if there's anything out there. Can you imagine, right, putting your entire family into a plane and just piloting it out to sea in the hopes that something's there? And there was. American ships sent by, sent by our government to receive those folks. And one of my favorite pictures from that time is a picture of U.S. Navy sailors pushing Huey helicopters over the side of ships to make room. This multi-million dollar helicopter is not as important as, as a human life. So my family went from, from Saigon. We flew out on a C-141 Starlifter, courtesy of the U.S. Air Force, and came to Guam, where a, a resettlement camp was being set up. We processed there. And then from there, flew to Camp Pendleton, California, uh, which was the first of four different resettlement camps set up for the Vietnamese refugees coming into the United States. And it was there that uh, the story becomes interesting. Governor Brown, the then governor of California, didn't want the Vietnamese refugees to stay in his state. In fact, he sent folks out to actually stop the planes from landing. Governor Evans of Washington State heard of this and says, well, what's up with this? So he sends his aide, Ralph Monroe, down to these camps at Camp Pendleton, where my family is, and and Ralph reports back to the governor, like, these are a bunch of, you know, people who are trying to make a new life for themselves, and uh, Governor Irwin says, you know what, we should do something to help them, and so he set a call out that says, look, if anybody wants to come to Washington State, we'd welcome you, 
And so my family was one of those that answered the call and uh, ended up settling in a small town in Washington State called Tumwater, Washington. And I grew up in a, in a small town, America. I was 18 months old at the time. This is all stuff I learned after the fact, but it was learning about that actually that inspired me to want to serve. Growing up, you know, learning about my family's history, I really began to feel like I, I had a debt that needed to be repaid, you know, a debt to the country for giving me and my family these wonderful opportunities, to the military for having brought us out of, of the country and rescuing us. And so I thought, what better way to repay that debt than by serving it this very same country. And, you know, that led me in my, my senior, you know, junior and senior year applying to and receiving an appointment to the United States Military Academy at West Point. There's a saying about West Point, it's a, it's a great place to be from. It's not always a great place to be. Uh, West Point is a remote place. And when you're a cadet there, it becomes your world, right? And, and that's, that's good in the sense that you get a, you know, you get to focus really strongly on the things that you should be doing, which is preparing yourself to be you know, a, a leader of character for the nation um, and to serve as a junior officer in the United States Army, it can be tough, right? Because, you know, your friends and family are far away and, you know, you hear tales about what your high school friends are doing at their civilian universities and you're like, wow, you know, yesterday I had an inspection and I got yelled at because my toothbrush was in the wrong place. I still remember one time walking into the, the cadet library and there's a case there and it contains rings from past classes. West Point, by the way, was the very first college to have class rings. It started the tradition of class rings. And this this ring case has rings from every class dating all the way back to the founding of West Point in 1802. And then you look in the ring case, as I was doing, and you notice that many of the rings are actually in really bad shape. They're, they're busted up. They're missing their stones. They look like they've had some rough times. And you're like, well, that's kind of odd. And then you read underneath each ring, and it's got a name and a date of birth and a date of death. Mm. And you realize that most of those rings in those case had been uh, donated to the academy after their wearers had been killed in combat. And to walk in and be realized, like, that's part of the tradition you become a mm. part of when you become a cadet at West Point, right? Duty, honor, country. You know, our graduates go on and serve. You, you live those values and, you, and you, you live them, you know, perhaps, you know, to the day that you make the ultimate sacrifice. I ended up going to U.S. Army Ranger School. It was great in the sense that I got through it and I got my Ranger tab. Now an Army Ranger, France deployed to Bosnia as a peacekeeper following the breakup of Yugoslavia after the Cold War. He continued to rise as a leader as he became the Deputy Chief of Police and SWAT Team Commander at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. After his five-year service requirement, France was ready to enter the civilian world but not ready to stop serving. He studied law and became the Deputy White House Counsel under George W. Bush. But after two years working in one of the top legal positions in America, France had a niche to see more action once again. This goes back to the theme of having a poorly developed sense of self-preservation. Um, <laughs> I, I joined a special forces unit that was mobilizing to deploy to Afghanistan. Um, and served wow. as the company executive officer on a deployment to Southeast Afghanistan from 2009 to 2010. During that time frame, uh, we spent our first six weeks searching for Private Bergdahl when he walked off an army installation. One of our installations was also uh, the scene of the suicide bomber attack that mm. was featured at Zero Dark Thirty. You know, it's classic special operations missions, right? You know, foreign internal defense, 
you know, village medical operations, all the things that um, special operations soldiers do to enable their partners to succeed and build capacity. But it was a very, very eye-opening. You know, I was on the ground for seven months. It was very eye-opening in the sense that, you know, it had been nine years since I put on a uniform. You know, I went from picking out neckties for work to picking out hand grenades on patrol. So it was a, a bit of a contrast. <laughs> when I was in Afghanistan, I got an email from Joe Fluitt, who I'd worked with at Williams Connolly, the law firm, uh, several years prior. Uh, Joe himself had deployed to Afghanistan in 2005 with the charge to stand up the Afghan Air Force. And so he had gone over and from scratch rented helicopters and recruited pilots and, and stood up the special operations aviation wow. wing for the Afghans. And so when I was in my closing days of my time in Afghanistan, he sent me an email, says, look, France, I've started two companies, uh, uh, an aerospace company and a law firm. And if you were here, I'd twist your arm and, you know, make you join right away. But you're off doing great and wonderful things for our country but be prepared for some arm twisting when you get back. I came back and Joe was like, hey, you know, here's the pitch. Here's the, here's the companies I want you to join. And I said, no. Uh, and I said, Joe, look, I, got, I have this whole career path ahead of me as a lawyer. Um, this sounds really risky. I'm not sure if I want to do it. Um, and then I remember walking around downtown DC thinking to myself, why did I say no? And I just kept thinking about it. And then I applied something I've talked about before, which is the rocking chair test. When you're 98 years old and you're sitting in a rocking chair mm-hmm. um, on your patio, thinking back on your life, you know, what are the things that you're going to regret not having done? And so the goal is to live life in such a way that there's the fewest number of items that you're going to regret having passed by when you're in that rocking chair at 98. And so I realized to myself that, oh, this, this falls into that. Like, I'm going to regret not having done this. So I called Joe back up and said, look, let's let's have another conversation. I might have been too hasty and thought to myself, gosh, I just spent the last year putting myself in, in harm's way. I was almost killed by a rocket, hand grenades and a wheelbarrow. Um, you know, what's a little bit of financial and, and career risk at this point? And so that's that was the start of my life as an entrepreneur. And you've been listening to France Hong. And what a story indeed. And this is a part of our Ditch Digger CEO series with Gary Rabine. And my goodness, this is a part of the Vietnam story we don't get to hear very often. And I'm so glad we're hearing it. And even though this is an entrepreneur series, and it's a series about risk-taking, my goodness, the risks that these men took long before, long before entering into the world of business guys who've laid their life on the line for the country. Well, they know a lot about risk and reward. When we come back, more of the life of France own here on Our American Story.
And we're back with our American stories and our Ditch Digger CEO series with Gary Rabine. We left off with Franz Hong returning from his second tour in the military and deciding to take the risk of becoming an entrepreneur. Let's get back to his story. When I became an entrepreneur, I became an entrepreneur in two companies simultaneously. So I became a partner in the law firm of FH and H and, you know, took on the responsibility for branding, marketing, and kind of the growth strategy of the law firm, and then became um, part of the executive team. And uh, like I said, part of the founding team of MAG Aerospace and initially focused on branding, marketing strategy, and all the legal work. MAG is a government services company that focuses on providing aerial surveillance work. So it operates planes, drones, and helicopters all around the world as a service to various customers, mostly the U.S. government, but there are also commercial customers and other friendly foreign governments. Shortly after I joined, the law firm lost its largest single client. Within short order, we were the owners were writing checks to make payroll, and I think to myself, well, this is kind of backwards. I became an entrepreneur to make money, and instead <laughs> I'm now putting money into, into the company. MAG likewise lost one of its biggest customers, but then within a couple of years had had recovered, but we really didn't have our breakout opportunity. We were, we wanted to be an aviation company, uh, but these, you know, aviation contracts are big, they're complex, they require a lot of capital. We had the opportunity to get onto an existing contract by purchasing three aircraft on the contract. It would take several million dollars to purchase those aircraft and nobody would loan us the money and nobody would invest in in MAG. And so what the founding team did was we emptied out everything we had, 401ks, some of us took out second mortgages, maxed out credit cards. I think there are a few wives that were not told about empty 401k accounts. Oh, um, I mean, like it was like that scene in a poker game, right? Like all in and we we bought the aircraft and the real rub was one of the reasons we could buy the aircraft was because the contract they were on was about to be canceled. And so not only were we all in, we had to be all in and then convince the customer not to cancel this contract right. that, that was making money, right, with the aircraft. Otherwise, you know, we would own three very, very expensive paperweights instead of having life savings. But good news story. We turned around the contract. The customer was very happy. And that was our very first uh, aviation contract. It was the start of a phenomenal growth by MAG Aerospace. And eight years later, you know, MAG is doing over... 300 million in revenue, uh, employs over 1,300 employees on every populated continent, and currently operates over 200 uh, planes, helicopters, and drones all around the world. Part of being a successful entrepreneur is having that idea that you're so in love with, you're so passionate about, that you want to be all in. And I, I would dare say that you shouldn't be an entrepreneur unless you have that. If you don't love your product or service, if you don't feel like it's going to change the world or it's something that's so meaningful to you that you don't have a choice, right? Like you, you want to create this company so badly, it's not even an option for you. Like this isn't, you know, it's like being in love, right? Like you either know, either you are or you aren't. If you have to ask the question, the answer is no. If you, if you want to know if you have the right idea to be an entrepreneur, you, you know, because it's something that you're just you want to be all in. In fact, not only you want, you need to be all in, you believe in it so much. The unofficial, and I think later official of mo motto of MAG was perform or be replaced. 
um, which which sounds harsh. And if you talk to Joe Fluid, he, he can give you a whole um, talk about this. But, you know, we try to recruit the people that, you know, if you take 10 people in in a company, you know, in many cases, five people are not pulling their weight. You know, right? three people are, are doing OK. And there's one or two rock stars. Right. And they often make up for everybody else. And our, we tried to recruit those one or two, and part of our pitch to them was, imagine being in a company where instead of pulling everybody's weight, right, you were struggling to keep up because everyone else was such a rock star as well. Can you imagine being in that environment? And so we brought in people that liked that, that, that wanted that kind of high-performance culture, um, and then we, we enforced it, or we, we held people's feet to the fire. We, we, we promoted people on the basis of meritocracy, not on the basis of relationship, and then we created um, a brand and marketed that brand based around this idea of kind of high performance. The law firm is uh, also doing well. We're up to, I think, 30 lawyers now based in Tysons, Virginia, growing, thriving practice over, you know, 1,000 clients and continues to, to, to grow and prosper. So it's interesting. When I became an entrepreneur, at first I thought, I was taking a break from service, right? In the sense that like before that I'd been in, served in uniform, served a country in uniform. I, you know, continue serving as a lawyer by, you know, being an appointee and in a white house. And I said, okay, it's time to go make money, right? This is a break yeah. from service. And what I discovered was that great entrepreneurs are also driven by desire to serve, right? They, they have, like I talked about earlier, this desire to serve by making a difference in the world through a product or service that they're passionate about, they believe in. And so I've now come to view that I've only had one career, which is a career of service, <laughs> you know, and I've been able to do those careers through multiple iterations as a as uh, a soldier, as a lawyer, and now as an entrepreneur. And so uh, I'm a huge believer in the ability of entrepreneurship to unlock human potential and to create things of, of value and of beauty. And so I'm in a place where I'd like to to take that and, and enable others. Still involved with companies and still growing companies, but I'm involved with organizations like the Think Tank. Where we're trying to create a, a council that sits at the intersection between technology and and issues of public policy. Um, I'm teaching up at West Point now, and part of what I do is talk to cadets about the linkages between innovation, entrepreneurship, the law, public policy, and, and social good. And so, um, I'm very fortunate. My, my various interests, also known as professional ADD, you know, have now put me in a place where I can kind of tap into all those things in, in various fashions. So I feel very lucky. We're a country of diversity and all that entails. We're a country of immigrants. We're a country that people like myself who came here you know, my grandma sewed my clothes up through eighth grade, right? I had a blue coat that came from Goodwill that I didn't even realize was a girl's coat until many years later. <laughs> and this country gives an opportunity for someone like me to go on and, and serve in uniform and then go to go to a place like Georgetown Law School and then continue to serve again. And then when I decided that I wanted to continue service as an entrepreneur to, to start and grow businesses, that's amazing, right? That this country provides so many opportunities and allows all the different people that come from all different walks of life and places around the world to come. I, I, I still remember this quote, and I'm, I'm struggling to remember who I should attribute it to. Oh, I know who to attribute it to. It's President Reagan. 
you know, he talks about how if you go to France, you can live there for your life, but you won't really be a Frenchman, right? Or if you go to, you know, Great Britain, you really won't be, you know, a Britishman, but anybody can become an American. You've been listening to France Own, and this is a part of our Ditch Digger CEO series with Gary Rabine. And my goodness, there's just so much here. It's almost like we all want to know so much more about his life and his story, and not just the entrepreneurship part, which is remarkable. I mean, talk about risk-taking to him. Oh, this isn't risk-taking. I mean, been in Afghanistan, fought. It was in Bosnia right after the breakup. That's risk-taking, folks. And you're risking your life, not your capital. But so much to be learned from so many immigrants across this country. And it's so true, Reagan's words, about just anyone being able to become American. And it's the beauty of our nation. It's our comparative advantage against all other nations in the end is that anyone can become an American. Just do it. Take that oath. Get to work. France Hong's story, our Ditch Digger CEO stories, here on Our American Story. And we continue here with our American stories. And our next story comes to us from a man whose YouTube videos are followed by hundreds of thousands of viewers of all ages. He's known simply as the history guy. And we spend a lot of time telling stories about the past. And that's every kind of story about the past. Because if you don't know who you are, well, you can't know who you're going to be. And so much of the story of who we are is the story of the past. And so that's why we spend a lot of time on history. So here's the history guy with the story he calls Centerline, the surprising history of lane markings. When Americans first started driving automobiles, they really hadn't set up rules or laws to operate the thing safely. In fact, for most of many decades, there wasn't even a line down the center of the road to delineate the lanes. In the fall of 1917, Dr. June McCarroll was driving her Ford Model T down the road near Indio, California when she was run off the road by a truck. She later said of the event, My Model T Ford and I found ourselves face to face with a truck on a paved highway. It didn't take me long to choose between the Sandy Berth to the right and the 10-ton truck to the left. And that's when I had my idea, pinning a white line down the center of the highways of the country as a safety measure. The California Department of Transportation credits Dr. McCarroll with the idea of painting a center line, but she wasn't actually the first to have that idea. You know, today that line down the middle of the hundreds of thousands of miles of roads around the world is, is so common. It makes such common sense, it's hard to imagine roads without them. But the history of delineating lanes on roads is actually surprising. And it deserves to be remembered. There are some early examples of lane marking. 
Well, jubilee years, years of forgiveness, are mentioned in the Bible, chapter of Leviticus. The tradition in the Western Catholic Church was started by Pope Boniface VIII in 1300 AD. So many people, as many as 200,000, came to Rome for the event that Boniface had a continuous line painted down the middle of each road in Rome to help manage the crowds. The line did not, however, denote the direction of traffic, but the type. Horses and carts would be on one side, foot traffic on the other. In 1600 AD, a road near Mexico City used lighter colored stones to denote a center line. Markings of a center line were used sporadically on bridges in the U.S. and elsewhere in the 19th century. New York City was using pavement lines to mark crosswalks as early as 1911. Conventions for the direction of travel developed with time and were largely set by the 19th century, although the world still not come to an agreement whether traffic should move to the left or to the right. Early traffic tended to have the traveler on the left, a tradition possibly derived so that your sword hand would face the road in case the person on the other side was an enemy. America took the convention of traffic moving on the right, a tradition which developed in the 18th century to make it easier to pass large agricultural wagons where the driver would control the horse team from the left rear horse, leaving his right hand free to control the whip. It was easier for the driver to see that he was clearing traffic that was passing to his left. Keep to the right laws were passed in both France and the United States in 1792. England, however, continued the tradition of traffic moving on the left, which was codified in the Highway Act of 1835 and is still followed in most of the former British Empire. But roads, for the most part, still did not have marked lanes, but the advent of the automobile and greater speeds made the need for such markings more apparent. Somewhat surprisingly, the move to mark those lanes appeared to originate in the United States. Cars became a sensation in the States. Between 1907 and 1917, they essentially replaced horses and carriages as the primary mode of transportation, a transition that was so quick that it outpaced society's ability to adjust. In 1910, there were only five cars per 1,000 people in the United States. But by 1920, that number had increased 17-fold to 86 per 1,000. When the Model T was introduced in 1908, it sold for $825. By 1912, the Model T runabout sold for $525, less than the average annual income in America, and the price continued to drop to a mere $290 in 1927. Cars became ubiquitous very soon after they were introduced. They became faster and faster, and paved roadways proliferated in an attempt to keep up. By 1918, there were over 10,000 motor vehicle deaths in the U.S. a year. As with many innovations, safety precautions and law systems were slow to keep up with the pace of technological change. It took a single decade for cars to become the primary mode of transportation in the United States, and the speeds men can now go with ease produced problems that had never been considered properly. In 1901, Connecticut became the first state in the country to institute a speed limit on motor vehicles, 12 miles an hour in town, 15 miles an hour on rural roads. Cars could go much faster than that. In 1911, a world record had been set by Bob Berman at Daytona Beach by going 141 miles an hour. While most cars couldn't go that fast, they had turned trips that took days into a matter of mere hours. One of the greatest challenges was lanes. With wagons and carriages, muddy roads developed ruts that were easy to follow. And while accidents were not trivial, they moved slowly enough that it was comparatively simple to avoid someone else on the road. While there is some disagreement, the first appearance of lane markings in the U.S. has been traced to Michigan, according to the Michigan Department of Transportation. The first line was painted in 1911 on River Road in Wayne County, Michigan, put there at the instigation of Edward N. Hines. 
Edward was a major innovator in road safety, spearheading the Good Roads Organization to improve public roads in Michigan in the 1890s. Hines also built the first stretch of concrete road in the world in 1909 and served on the Wayne County Board of Roads when it was created in 1906, alongside Henry Ford himself. Hines was said to have the original idea of pinning a line down the middle of the road when he saw a milk truck go by that was leaking milk and thus leaving a white line behind him as it passed. And while the idea has become since a bedrock of traffic control, it took some time for it to catch on nationally. In 1917, in addition to Dr. McCarroll, several other people had the idea to paint lines, apparently independently of one another, in three different states. In Michigan, Kenneth Ingalls Sawyer, as engineer superintendent of Marquette County, painted a white center line along a dead man's curve. In Oregon, Deputy Sheriff Peter Rexford came up with the idea while on a bus driving on a dark rainy night. The county refused to fund the project, so Chief Deputy Martin Pratt paid for the paint that was later painted on the Columbia River Highway between Crown Point and Multnomah Falls in April 1917. It was later that fall that Dr. McCarroll was run off the road near Indio, California. Dr. McCarroll holds a unique place in the story, however, because her work went beyond just coming up with the idea. When the local Chamber of Commerce was uninterested in her plan, McCarroll painted the line herself. She instigated a letter-writing campaign that would help convince the state of California to adopt the measure universally in November 1924, and the State Highway Commission painted the lines. But at the time, there were few, if any, standards or guiding principles for markings, and where those standards or guiding principles did exist, they were on a local level, and there was no coordination between local agencies. In 1930, the National Conference on Street and Highway Safety published a manual on street traffic signs, signals, and markings. The manual recommended pavement lane markings in a number of cases, for example on curves of less than 600 foot radius, and also on hill crests where the view ahead is insufficient to permit overtaking the passing in safety. Center lines were also recommended on streets with high traffic both directions and streets wide enough to have more than one lane either direction. Lines were recommended to be at least four inches wide and be white or yellow on bituminous pavement and black or white on concrete. The use of black lane markings became less popular during the Second World War, when black markings could not be seen while driving under blackout conditions. The use of broken lines to note places where lane changing is permitted was not defined until a new manual was produced in 1948. The original purpose of the dashed lines was to save costs by reducing the amount of paint needed to mark lanes. The length of the lines and gaps was not defined, but the manual said it should be well proportioned. The manual further noted that on rural highways, a commonly used standard of 15-foot segments with 25 gaps was normal. No national standard was adopted until 1978. Research shows that people tend to underestimate the length of the broken lines, with people surveyed most commonly assuming that the lines are two feet long with equal gaps in between. In fact, since 1978, the broken lines in the U.S. are standardized to be 10 feet long with a 30-foot gap in between. Thus, every time your car passes a new dashed line, it has traveled 40 feet, far further than most people assume. For years, states had local rules for what colors of paint to use on the roads for different purposes, and especially heated was the debate between whether white or yellow paint should be used to divide highways. By November 1954, 43 years after the first center line was painted, 47 of the then 48 states had decided to use white as the dividing line, and Oregon, the last state, capitulated later that year. In 1958, the interstate U.S. Bureau of Public Roads adopted white lines to divide lanes. 
But in 1971, the Federal Highway Administration required now that all center lines on two-way roads be painted yellow, while white center lines are used to demarcate lanes of traffic going in the same direction, the now familiar system that we use today. The history of painting centerline road markers tells us that a few people with a good idea willing to make a small change could make, well, a large difference. Today, both Edward Hines and Kenneth Ingalls Sawyer are in the Michigan Transportation Hall of Honor. And the section of road on which Dr. McCarroll first painted her white line is now named in her honor, the Dr. June McCarroll Memorial Freeway. That was the history guy you've been listening to. And if you want more stories of forgotten history, subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. And by the way, I love a little quote he had, and I'm going to read you as we, as we leave this hour. I have always loved history, a passion I got from my mother, who emphasized education. And my father liked John Wayne movies. While I earned a degree in history, life took me elsewhere. And after careers in education and the corporate world, I decided to follow my passion and tell the stories of forgotten history I've always loved to tell. I believe that history does not have to be boring. History might be tragic. It might be comic. But it's the story of who we are, and we should not be afraid to enjoy that story and be moved by that story. The surprising story of lane markings here on Our American Stories.